I want you to imagine that you're going through downtown Minneapolis, or perhaps you're out at the Mall of America, perish the thought, minding your own business, and suddenly walking up to you is a somewhat earnest person, and says, how would you like to be in a movie? And you say, well, sounds okay. Tell me what it entails. And they begin explaining to you what exactly you're going to show up at this time, at this day, in this location, and you are going to be part of this feature film that's being produced. And you show up, and you get there all excited, ready to be a Hollywood star, and suddenly you realize that you're in one of those scenes in which there's about a thousand people walking and milling around and you are miles away from any importance, you are just in extra. And you get really upset. You say to that person, you walk straight up to the director and you say, wait a second, I was recruited on false pretenses. You said I was going to be in the movie. And now I am not anywhere near the spotlight. I'm not anywhere where I thought I was going to be. I'm not any closer to being a star than I absolutely was. And you storm off the set in a huff. Now, I think we all can agree about the unreasonableness of your position. What the director might say rightly to you is, wait, wait, wait a second. You thought you were going to be the star of this movie. No, no. This movie is not your story. This movie is my story. And I didn't recruit you to be a star in my story. I recruited you to be in extra. I showed you an act of grace by offering you to be a part of my story. I never promised that you would be the star of your story. I start with that illustration because we're looking tonight at a passage in the book of Jeremiah I don't think it's been preached very often. There's a site that I go to at times to see what other preachers have preached on topics, and not one in this large compendium of, ser of sermons that go across any book <laughs> preached on Jeremiah chapter 16. You can look up your favorite preacher. Probably he's never preached on Jeremiah chapter 16. And yet I was struck by Jeremiah 16 as we worked through the book of Jeremiah together as a church recently, and not just on Jeremiah 16, but how it fits into the whole book. The book of Jeremiah, there's no getting around it, is a really dark book. It can be a really hard book to read, not just because of all the judgments that fall, but because how do you not start emotionally identifying with its star, with its author? How do you not connect with a man whose calling involves such suffering, such shame, 
such sorrow. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet for a reason, because he says, oh, that my eyes were, were fountains of tears. I could cry all day for what is happening in the end of the nation that I love, the nation of Israel. And I think we see in Jeremiah a lesson that I hope we will apply to ourselves tonight and that the preacher will apply to himself tonight. And it goes back to this simple question. What does God owe you? Does he owe you to be the star in your story? To have a storybook life here? Or instead, does he offer you the opportunity to be a part of his story? No matter how anonymous, no matter how difficult, no matter involving how much suffering, the title of the message tonight is simply this. What does God owe you? What does God owe you? And from the life of Jeremiah and from our own experience, I want all of us to look inwardly and say, what do I really believe God owes me? We're going to look at this in three aspects tonight. First of all, we're going to look at Jeremiah's story. What was the story to which God called him to live through? Secondly, we're going to look at Jeremiah's suffering. There's no getting around. Not just we see from this passage, but we see more broadly in the book of Jeremiah the suffering that this man experienced. And third, we're going to look at what I'm going to call Jeremiah's set-apartness. I mean his sanctification, but not in the way you and I do. And we'll look at exactly what I mean by Jeremiah's set Apartness. Will you start with me? Jeremiah's story. Let's look at Jeremiah 16. We'll work through this text together and understand what is going on here. Jeremiah 16 and verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. For thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters that are born in this place and concerning their mothers that bear them and concerning their fathers that begat them in this land, they shall die of grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented, neither shall they be buried, but shall be as dung upon the face of the earth. How utterly horrible. And they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine and their carcasses shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. Now, part, stop, stop there for a minute. Notice what God is saying to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, your calling in life is to be single and to be childless. Now, you need to understand what this meant for a Jewish male. Jewish males, it would have been a great shame for them to be single. That was not the, 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 the allotted portion of life to them. And as we probably know, just from our understanding of Old Testament history, it was not viewed as a blessing to be childless. We saw that with mothers who were childless, like Hannah or like Rachel in the Old Testament, and the grief that it bore, they, they, they felt like failures if they could not produce a son for the man whom they loved. So now God is taking Jeremiah, his prophet, his messenger, and saying, Jeremiah, what I'm calling you to, I'm calling you to be single, and I'm calling you to be childless. 
And notice what God's message is. Notice what the symbol of it is. Jeremiah, number one, it's an act of mercy toward him. Because God's saying is, if you did have children, it would be a very difficult experience for them. The children who are going to be born are going to experience great suffering and tragedy when I bring my judgment on this rebellious people. Very dark and difficult to listen to. But it's also a symbol to the whole land. You look in the book of Isaiah or you look in the book of Ezekiel or in other books and these, these prophets of God are called to these sometimes bizarre symbols, these bizarre object lessons in which they are the object and they, they themselves are to be the lesson to the people. And here God is saying through Jeremiah, there are grievous times of suffering coming to this land. And it's symbolized by Jeremiah being single and being childless. But notice, keep on going. Verse 5, For thus saith the Lord, Enter not into the house of mourning, the house of grief, the funeral parlor. Neither go to lament nor bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, saith the Lord, even loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, nor cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. There will be no public grief over the, the corpses that litter this land when my judgment passes through it. Horrible. Horrible thought. Neither shall men tear themselves for them in mourning to comfort them for the dead. Neither shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or for their mother. Now pause there for a minute. What's God saying? God's saying is when there are funerals in this land, you won't go to them. I don't care who it is. You don't go grieve for the dead in this land. Now that might seem cold or callous, but the reality of it for Jeremiah was that he was cutting himself off from the social network of his day. When you didn't go to the funeral, you were identifying yourself as the outcast. You were identifying yourself as the person who was separated from your community. Again, if you've heard teaching on the Old Testament or the New Testament in, in, of Jewish culture, you would know how much the funeral meant to them. You would know how important it was to have grievers and those coming alongside to publicly lament someone who was lost. It was a sign of your love and affection, not only for the lost, the one who had died, but for the family. And now Jeremiah is standing completely apart from this public communal sorrow when someone died. He's cutting himself off from the community. Keep on going. For thus saith the Lord, verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 8. Thou shalt not also go into the house of feasting and to sit with them to eat and to drink. Don't go to any public feast. Don't go to any celebrations. Don't go to any weddings. Why? For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will cause to cease out of this place in your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. There are going to be no parties no celebrations when my judgment passes through this land. Now notice again what God is telling Jeremiah. You're to be cut off from your community. You don't go to the graduation parties. You don't go to the weddings. You don't go to the times of joy. You're to separate yourself. Again, notice what God is calling. He's commanding Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you're going to be single and you're going to be childless. You're going to experience the shame of that in your, in your life. 
Number two, you're going to be lonely. You are going to be completely isolated from the life of your Jewish community that you grew up with. Now, how many of us, seriously, at this point in the story, would say, I'll sign up for that? Sounds like the calling I want in my life. God said, Jeremiah, this is what I'm telling you to do. But not only that, not only was he single to be single and childless, not only was he to be lonely, he was to be hated. Keep on going. Verse 10, And it shall come to pass when thou shalt show this people all these words. He was to be a public proclamation. And they shall say unto thee, Wherefore hath the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then shalt thou say unto them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. And ye have done worse than your fathers. For behold, ye walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore will I cast you out of this land, into a land that ye know not, neither ye nor your fathers. And there shall ye serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. He was to absolutely give a stirring rebuke, cutting straight to the heart of the matter. Now, the Jews of that day were just as patriotic as Americans are today maybe more. How do you think they responded when the prophet of God told them, you know what? This land is done. Those Babylonians, your enemy, they're coming. And they are going to wipe you out. How do you think the Jews responded of his day? Exactly like what you'd expect. In fact, in Jeremiah 17, just one chapter later, in verse 15, Jeremiah reports to God, Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. You understand what they're saying. They're mocking him. Jeremiah, you're predicting all these things that are happening in the past. Let it come now. Let it come now. Where is it? Where is it? We haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it yet. They're mocking him. In fact, later in Jeremiah 20, he said, The word of the Lord is a derision. It's a derision to me daily. All these people were saying, aha, you're, you're pointing all this stuff in the future and you say it's coming. It's been a year. We haven't seen it yet. Where is it? He was mocked. He was belittled. He was hated. He was the guy calling out his own land. And the tragedy of this prophecy to which Jer Jeremiah was called is that he loved his land. He loved his people. Why do you think he's called the weeping prophet? In Jeremiah 9, in verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Single, childless, lonely, hated. If you were offered that part in a movie, how many of us would say, I'll take it, I'll, I'll, I'll take it, that's my story. I'm signing up that for that. And if you look through the rest of the book of Jeremiah, friends, it doesn't get a lot better for this man. It doesn't. You remember that after Babylon comes in and carries out their first set of people, Jeremiah it t testifies to, his, to the people who are left. They say, hey, should we go into Egypt? He says, don't, don't, don't go into Egypt. That's not what God wants. You stay here and I'll bless you. And what do they do? They go to Egypt. They don't just go to Egypt. Who do they take? Him. He's dragged away to Egypt from his homeland. 
rabbinic tradition, at least there's a strand, I understand, that suggests that Jeremiah may have survived that and been taken captive to Babylon uh, when all of the people of the land were removed. He may have survived that long. Here was a man who came into ministry when Josiah, good King Josiah, was the king of Judah. And he sees the complete walking away, the apostasy of Judah, his homeland. He sees Babylon coming. He's prophesying and prophesying and prophesying. He sees it come to pass. He experiences the rejection of all the people. He is persecuted. He's beaten. He is hated for the sake of God. And perhaps as best we know, he dies in a homeland, far far away from his homeland, in a foreign country. That was his calling. That was what God commanded him to. That was Jeremiah's story. And you know, what I want to look at secondly is not just Jeremiah's story, but Jeremiah's suffering. Because if we think that this was a man who experienced all of this and, and maintained just a chipper outlook on life, it's not what happened. And I say this in our own suffering that we can see a man who knew his calling, who knew his purpose, for whom God had told him, this is what I have called you to, and he still suffered under it. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah chapter 20. Look at Jeremiah's lamentation in verse 7. This is after the beginning of Jeremiah 20 when Jeremiah absolutely upbraids a man named Pasher. He was one of the priests of his day. And he absolutely has a broadside against Pasher and Pasher smites Jeremiah, likely beat him, put him in the stocks and ultimately releases him. And Jeremiah, you can see in verse... Number four through verse six, Jeremiah does not change his message. He only heightens it against Pasher. And look at after Jeremiah publicly berates Pasher for for his rebellion against God. Look at what Jeremiah says to God in verse seven. He says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I and hast prevailed. I am in derision every one, daily. Every one mocketh me. Literally, he's saying, I'm a laughingstock, God. Do you see? I've been beaten publicly. I've been placed in the stocks. I am the laughingstock of the people. For since I spake, verse 8, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, with holding in, and I could not stay. For I heard the defaming of many fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report All my familiars watch for my halting, saying, Peradventure, maybe he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. And then in verse 11 through 13, he begins to rally, and he begins to praise the Lord, and he begins to come to this place of, of seeming victory over his emotions. But then look with me again in verse 14. Listen to this. What a remarkable turn. Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day 
wherein my mother bare me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not. And let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide, because he slew me not from the womb, or that my mother might have been my grave, and her womb to be always great with me. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame. Do you feel that? I, I, I almost, part of us, does it turn away and say, this is the inspired word of God? I mean, if those words came out of your mouth in your prayer time tomorrow, what would you feel? D did I just sin very grievously? I mean, he's saying, I should have never, I wish I would have died from a youth, from the time I was a baby, rather than see the suffering I've faced, to be consumed with shame. How are we to even come into this kind of suffering? Honestly, really, how are we to come into it? Now, there are theological depths that we could dig into here. But that's not the main thing that I'm focused on. The main thing I'm focused on is to realize that Jer Jeremiah's story was a story of complete suffering. Shame that took a man who knew God and knew God's word almost certainly far more closely than you or I do and plunged him into this depth of despair and self-loathing and spiritual depression. And, and I say that because going back e even many hundreds of years previously, those great saints of God oftentimes have known something they called the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. It is the senses, as one, as one writer has put it, it is a state of intense spiritual anguish in which the struggling, despairing believer feels he is abandoned by God. And before we cast any judgment on those who have been there, you will find it in, in if you just were to go through Christian history and identify the great believers and great pe people who have done great things for God who have been there, you'd probably find more that haven't, that have than those who haven't. Martin Luther knew the dark night of the soul. A.W. Tozer knew the dark night of the soul. Charles Spurgeon knew the dark night of the soul. And you could go on and on and on. Those men and women who have been so close to God and yet a particular period in their life have been to the point of this kind of despair like the prophet Jeremiah. See it in scripture. David, read the Psalms. Did he know the dark night of the soul? You bet he did. What about Elijah? When after his great triumph over Jezebel, he was left saying, God, it's enough. Just kill me. Why am I even alive? What am I doing here? Did Elijah know the dark night of the soul? Yes. Here, Jeremiah called to such suffering seems to give in to that dark night and to cry out to God, cursed be the day I was born. I was even born. Jeremiah's suffering, we, sh we should just let that sink in.
to us of what this dear man of God, this sensitive, emotional man, was experiencing. But here's the point. Here's the point that I want to bring out to us tonight. God called him to this. This is not Jeremiah's, in a sense, weakness, though, of course, it did involve that. God called him to this. You say, how do you know? Well, go back to Jeremiah chapter 1, will you? Go back to Jeremiah chapter 1. And look with me in verse number 4. This is the calling of Jeremiah. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I literally set you apart. I set you to the side. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Now, now, now notice here what's going on. Jeremiah is looking back to when he was in the womb and saying, why couldn't I have died there? Why couldn't have my story ended when I was in the womb? And what's God saying to him? What did he say to him from Jeremiah 1? I knew you before that. I called you before that. I called you to be what? My prophet. I ordained you to stand like a brazen wall and receive all the slings and arrows of my rebellious people. I called you. I ordained you. I directed you to be single and childless and lonely and hated. This is my plan for you. And Jeremiah said, okay. Okay. And he experienced it. And he suffered under it. And he wept through it. And he drank fully the cup that God had called him to drink. And you know, we don't just see that with Jeremiah, do we? What about with Paul? Paul, the chief of sinners, the one who went in persecuting and bringing out Christians to their persecution and death. And do you remember what happened when Paul, when Jesus appeared to Paul on that road to Damascus and he went, God, God personally called Ananias to come and lead Paul into the full understanding of the gospel. And listen to what God says to Ananias in Acts 9. The Lord said to Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. I've called him. I've chosen him to be mine. He's mine. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now listen to this. For I will show him how great things he must suffer. For my namesake. How great things he must suffer. You see, God called Paul to be saved. Yes, he did. What did he also call him? At that same time, he said, I've called him to suffer for me. And suffer, Paul did. Single. Likely childless. Lonely. Hated. And ultimately murdered. Now, I don't intend to be entirely dark here, but I don't think I can preach this message without being a little bit dark. It is to recognize 
that God calls us to be part of his story. And his story for us may, will involve suffering, difficulty, sometimes significant distress. But this is where I want to ask you the question I started with, what does God owe you? What does God owe me? You see, the point I want to make simply tonight is that God does not owe you to be the star of your own story. He doesn't, he doesn't owe you to write an autobiography with a storybook ending for you. He does not. He does not owe you anything, dear one. He does not owe me anything. God offers us to be a part of his story. And he says, I have a role for you. I have a calling for you. I have a purpose for you. It may involve suffering. But you know what? It's my story. And that's the greatest gift. A God who is the creator and redeemer God can offer to his creation. You see, what do you believe God owes you? You know, you and I can likely guess what we really at our deepest core think God owes us when we see what we chafe most against when it's not there. We may begin to feel like God owes us a marriage or a happy marriage, that God owes us a thriving family, that God owes us a good job, that God owes us a retirement account that has enough money in it, that God owes us respect from those who are around us, that, that God owes us something particularly satisfying in this life. And then we look at Jeremiah and we say, oh, wait a second. God doesn't owe us that, does he? Maybe we are, we are tempted to look at all of the things that we seem to be lacking in our life and that, and that others seem to be enjoying. We say, God, why aren't you giving it to me? Well, I thought you intended to bless me. And God says, dear one, I, I don't owe you that. But I did offer you to be part of my story in whatever way I have deemed to be fit for you. You see, we have to be so careful here, friends, because it is so simple and so seductive for a kind of health and wealth and prosperity gospel to slip into even good gospel preaching churches. I will tell you, and I say this with all humility, for those of you who are influenced by Bill Gothard and for his ministry and maybe even developed some, saw some very good things come out of that, you have to be aware there is a danger there that if you listen in a certain way or take something in in a certain way, you're going to experience this. Well, God intends for me to be blessed. God intends for me to be prosperous. If I just do these things, if I check these boxes, if I do this spiritual practice over here, certainly God intends to bless me. Friend, God doesn't owe you anything. He does not. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to be very clear. This is where we must be very discerning. If we apply the principles that are in Scripture, does God intend for you to have healthier relationships than unhealthy ones? Certainly, when we apply His Word, we can put aside some stumbling blocks that would lead very naturally to broken relationships. Can we agree on that? It's better to forgive. It's better to rebuke. It's better to live it the Bible way. Yes, absolutely. 
But does that guarantee you a happy marriage? No, it doesn't. Because God doesn't owe you a spouse who will do it the same way. He doesn't. In, there, in fact, friends, when we look at our own lives and we look at our own experiences, we see that maybe even in ways that we have had the best intentions and the best motivations to follow it God's way, those who are around us do not. And we say, God, I thought you were going to be blessing me. And God is saying, child, I never promised you that. I don't owe you that. But I've still offered you to be a part of my story. If you think about even the scriptural example of 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter is speaking very practically to Christian wives who have unsaved husbands and probably are experiencing a lot of difficulty and a lot of misery over it. And what is God's calling, his inspired command to these dear, long-suffering wives? He said, if he's pleased to dwell with you, don't divorce him. Don't leave him. Even though I may have suffering, even though I may have difficulty as a result, it's as if God says, yes, because who knows? Who knows? Sometimes those husbands can be one without a word. You see, God says, I'm offering you to play the role I cast you in. I'm offering you by grace the chance to be a member of my kingdom and fulfill my purposes for you, whether it involves your suffering or whether it involves in certain ways your great satisfaction because I am the potter and you, dear one, are the clay. Now, this is where I want to step back and look at not only Jeremiah's story, not only Jeremiah's suffering, but what I'm going to call Jeremiah's set-apartness. And for this, I'm asking you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. And I want to look at two verses as we close here tonight that I hope will be an encouragement to you in whatever calling God has made to you and whatever suffering and whatever circumstances you tend to chafe against in your own life. Notice what God says in verse 23. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Now do you see what God is saying there? He's speaking to Jeremiah and to all of his people, and he's saying, what are you really rejoicing? What are you really delighting in? What are you really glorying in? Are you glorying in anything that puts yourself as the star of the show? You see that? Is the rich man, what's the rich man going to glory in? Whatever builds him up and makes him look good. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. What about the wise man? Well, I'm the smart guy here. No. Don't glory in that in which you are at the center of the show. I read that when I was in trial. And I came across that passage. It was like God just said to me, you know, Peter, when the client thinks trial's going really well and you're really happy with how everything's coming in in trial, what are you glorying in? 
Are you glorying in that you know me? And that's all. Are you glorying not in yourself being the center of the story, but that I have let you play a role in my story? What are we glorying in? You see, Jeremiah was set apart not to glory in anything other than in the fact that God had called him to be his messenger to the nations, to play a central role in God's story with all the difficulty and all the isolation and with all the suffering that came with it. God told Jeremiah from the beginning, See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. And Jeremiah needed to keep on being reminded, Yes, God, you've called me to be a part of your story, no matter the challenges that come with it. I don't know if any of you heard in those words, what I suspect was going through Paul's mind when he wrote these words in Galatians chapter 6, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Do you know Jeremiah and Paul are saying the exact same thing. When Jeremiah says, Let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Do you know that's saying the exact same thing? As God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross. You say, what do you mean? Because what does it mean when you glory in the cross? When you glory in the cross, you are glorying in God's loving kindness. That when Jesus hung on that cross, it was the ultimate expression of God's steadfast love toward his elect people. That when Jesus hung on that cross, it was God's ultimate expression of judgment and justice in the earth. That his, that sin, would be punished even when it fell on the back of his son. And it was the ultimate expression of God's righteousness that God made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When we glory in the cross, what are we glorying in? That we know there is a God who exercises loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. And we glory that we know him. And he has revealed himself to us in the death of his son. As we close here tonight, I ask you this question, what do you believe that God owes you? What parts of your life, what areas of suffering and difficulty in your life do you most chafe against in which you feel Maybe you wouldn't even say it, but some part of you feels that God owes you this. I hope that as we look at the example of one of God's great suffering servants tonight, the prophet Jeremiah, that you would bow your knee tonight. You would bow your heart. And you would say, God, I realize tonight you don't owe me anything.
but you have graciously offered for me to play a part in your story. And I pray that as you do that tonight, you would recommit yourself to glory in nothing else, nothing else but the cross. That great token, that great symbol, that great object by which God has invited you to play a role in his story no matter the suffering and difficulty that comes and for you to find your great satisfaction in being a part of the greatest story ever told.